I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. There's so many cultural mysteries out there. Take kissing, for example. It happens across all human societies. No matter where we're from, we all give our friends affectionate pecks on the cheeks and smother our babies in smooches. But did you know that the other kind of kissing, like sexy kissing, is not actually found in all human cultures? Or parking spaces. Everyone wants one, no one can find one. Why does it seem like no matter how many parking lots we build, there are never enough spots? Or mosh pits. You know that writhing mass of people smashing into each other that you'll see at certain concerts? Why is that a thing? These are the kind of things you'll hear about on the podcast, Dakota Ring. It's a show that takes the questions on culture you never knew you had and always finds the answer. This is Podcast Playlist. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Dakota Ring is created and hosted by Willa Paskin, and she's with me today to talk about the show and share her favorite podcasts. Welcome, Willa, to Podcast Playlist. Hi, <laughs> thank you very much for having me. Great to have you here. Before you started this show in 2018, you were a TV critic for several years. What made you want to transition to solving pop culture mysteries? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. So I was a TV critic, I think, almost for like a decade. I was By the time I was finished with it, it had been a long time. Um, and I had loved TV. Like, I loved TV so much when I was growing up. But it's just hard, you know, to love something <laughs> when you're watching um, bad versions of it for that long and to to be interested and excited about it uh, continuously. I'm in awe of critics who can really, like, just do it forever. Um, so I was pretty tired of television. And I wanted to just think more critically about more stuff. And I really liked podcasts and it seemed fun. And I... I honestly, this is so embarrassing to say, but like I kind of always like I really liked the sound of my own voice. You know, people are always <laughs> pretending they don't or they maybe they really don't. But I wasn't one of those people. And I was like, um, maybe this would be like a fun, interesting thing to do. And I um, I really didn't know very much. I mean, I didn't know anything really about making a show. And I really hadn't actually listened to that many podcasts at that point. Mm-hmm. So it was like just fun and interesting to do something new. And I knew I, I mean, the idea for the show that I that I started with was like, we'll answer questions. But what that actually meant has, um, it wasn't really fleshed out, like sort of beyond, we'll answer interesting questions. Uh, <laughs> and it, it's, it has, I mean, just even in, in coming up with it with the first episode that evolved and um, it has evolved since. And you, you cover all kinds of different topics on the show. And, you know, we mentioned a few of them at the top, but there've been others like gender reveal parties, rubber ducks, the Karen, the tooth fairy, what do all of these things have in common and make for then good subject matter for the show? Well, I mean, I, someone has said, and I think it's like kind of true, it's like a decodering is like, you know it when you see it. You don't know it beforehand. And I like that. I like that it's varied and you don't know what it's going to be about. I think that's important. And I want us to keep being varied. I think there's things that um, at this point seem sort of 
like something we might do. You know, I don't know, like 80s toy fads seems we've, we've touched on quite a lot. I, maybe we should never do them again. Um, but I mean, I think the thing about having come out of criticism is part of what the show is about is things that I can get excited and curious about. And that is a part of what how we pick topics. It's like, oh, maybe I have an idea about, you know, the tooth fairy. Like <laughs> maybe I maybe there's and then sometimes that idea turns out not to be true or you find something else. But like you you have some first notion that seems interesting to you. Right. To we're we're going <laughs> to listen to a bit of the show so people can get an idea of what it's like if they haven't heard it before. But first, I'm hoping you can tell us about some of your favorite episodes. Uh, let's start with the one about Colombo and Romania. What's what's the story behind that one? <laughs> Yes. So we've probably done like, I haven't looked recently, but it's probably close to around 80 episodes at this point. Um, And so we do 100% like want people's ideas and inspirations. And I had asked, you know, like listeners on Twitter actually for ideas and someone had sent this link to a story about this wild story that Peter Falk, the star of Columbo, has told on David Letterman. It's seen all over the world, isn't it, in one form or another? It's very, very popular in Romania. In Romania? About how he was asked by the communist regime in Romania to record a PSA, basically asking them to calm down because they were really upset that there was no more episodes of Columbo and he had been called in to sort of like quell this Romanian riot about the lack of Columbo. And I got to tell the people, I got to tell the people, put down your guns. <laughs> they, were, they were arming themselves over this? My God! And I was like, let me, let me see if that's true. You know, I figured, like, it's probably true. Uh, you know, I mean, probably some version of, some less dramatic version of it's true. And it can be an occasion to think about Columbo, which at the time, and still, you know, it's kind of everywhere for an old show in the mm. sense that it had this huge boost in viewership after the during and after the pandemic. It's really like self-contained sort of comfort TV. So, like, this is really interesting. There's been all these Columbo remakes in lots of different countries. There's a statue of Peter Falk on, randomly on a corner in Budapest. Like, we can think about what it is about this show that is speaking to people everywhere and also, um, like, what makes propaganda, mm. you know, like, on purpose or otherwise. But then, <laughs> so I was like, it's, it'll be easy. I'll just report this out. Someone's going to remember this, right? Like, this is a big deal story. So, like, lo and behold, I started calling people who had been at the American embassy in Bucharest, where this all happened in um, Romania at the time, and, like, just started striking out. But we're not, like, a huge team. And so I kept, like, putting all this energy into it. Like, I just I would have, like, an hour, and I would just make a, a lot of phone calls to diplomats from the 1970s <laughs> and I was just like one day like I'm gonna get this do you know it was like it just like started accruing where I'd called like 20 people and I was like I gotta figure this out like why doesn't anyone remember this and that like I mean I just it just kept going and then we did actually find out what happened <laughs> uh eventually and so we're like we have to make this episode and we turned it into two and that was like that was a, that's like a perfect example of I thought it was interesting but it turned out not to be what I thought but then we had to make it interesting anyway yeah. Right. And, and you had another story called The Sign Painter. What was yes. that one about? So that one's really very different. Uh, it's very different from Columbo. And it's, it's different in its way from a lot of other episodes that we've done, which is that it's personal. Um, I have this very close, like my one of my mom's oldest friends is this artist named Alona Granite, who I, I grew up this with. This one is from a series, men who were acting poorly towards women. So they were actually about sex. She was a memorable person to me as a young, as a kid. 
And she's an artist and she's never really quite made it. And she's had a hard life. Like she's a struggling artist. Do you remember when I made you cry when I was little? Oh, yeah. <gasps> and I told you to get a life. <gasps> oh, yes. You told me to get a life. That was the most horrible thing you could say to somebody. Me without a family. So I am mortified by this. I just knew her story. I knew her really well. And I also was like, yeah, this happens to lots of people and we don't look at it very much. And I think there's a way to do an episode about her. And I would like to. I wanted to see her like it felt like a like a topic that everyone has some relationship to. So um, the episode is about her. And it's like the framing question is like, why haven't you heard of her? But it's, it's really also a question about like sort of you know, what does it mean to not make it? And and what do you make of your life when you haven't? Or is that the only way that you could define it? And I'm just wondering now that you've been making this show for the last five years, what has it taught you about the medium of podcasting itself? I mean, I think, I think that the truth is that coming from a print journalism background and now having spoken to and talked to and worked with a lot of people who come from a radio first background, I think um, my approach is still pretty writerly, like relatively speaking. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, there are like a podcast is so I think of it as so three dimensional. And there's so much there's obviously a craft to writing. Um, but when people say like there's a craft to writing, you're always like, do you mean it? <laughs> like, you're just like you're, there's something where you're always like a little like, OK. Um, but with podcasts, you're like, no, it's there like is that cra-? like you're like, I'm building something, you know, like it has these parts. So we're going to have to like engine like it just it feels so much more tactile, like you're just moving stuff around. I think it's sort of it's almost like writing is a puzzle. But mm. podcasting is like really a puzzle. I don't even mean that thematically, although that is also the show. I mean, like how the pieces lock together. Um, and like when you get it right, the satisfy like the satisfaction of like the thwack or whatever of the of the puzzle of the structure coming together. And that's true in writing, but it just feels much more pronounced to me in in podcasting. It just honestly feels like three dimensional versus flat. Mm. And what podcasts really influence the way you make your show? Are there any that you you kind of use as your your um, wayfinders? Well, I mean, the truth is that, like I said, you know, I hadn't, I was not like a heavy podcast listener at, when the show started, and, and I am now. Um, I listen to a lot of stuff. And I, I mean, I think actually I really can listen to podcasts just like with my, like as just a listener. But of course you hear things and you pick up on things and you take things that they seem good and they're like, oh, that's an interesting structure. But when we went into making the show, I mean, I was like just familiar really with like the big guns. Like I knew This American Life and Radiolab and like Terry Gross, you know. And so I think, I mean, in podcasting, there is this, right, there's like a high touch podcast and then like a low touch. So high touch being like a fully produced narrative show and a low touch podcast being like a chat show and then this like mythical in between where you'd be medium touch and somehow it'd be super satisfying, but you wouldn't have gotten all the way in over your head and uh, it also just wouldn't be a conversation. And if I knew more about podcasts when I started, we would have tried to like do the mythical medium touch, I think. Because <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. like, but it just, but having only the, like, we just immediately, like, it's almost like the only thing we knew how to do. And probably the only thing, because there was, is the only thing there was really models for, was just like go whole hog and just be like, let's make a narrative show that's like where we talk to 20 people for every episode, you know? Um, <laughs> uh, and, and that, and I don't, no regrets, you know? Like, I love doing that. But if I was to start a show from scratch now, I'd be like, we need to have different ways of being satisfying. Right. 
And I think that that's actually very difficult. I don't I don't think that's like I think that's a difficult problem sort of industry wide. But I I would it's a problem like we're thinking about. And I think there's some answers. Um, and, I, and that actually, honestly, is one of the things I'm listening for most at this point. So in a minute, we're going to listen to a clip from the first half of your two part episode about Jane Fonda. Um, But this requires a bit of backstory first. How did this end up becoming a two-part episode? Okay. (laughs) I really love this episode. I was actually listening to the Dolly Parton miniseries from Radiolab. So good. So good. And Jane Fonda appears in it because, of course, Dolly Dolly Parton and Jane Fonda work together on 9 to 5. And I was like, someone should do what they're doing for Dolly Parton for Jane Fonda. Like, what a crazy character. Like, she's so political. She's done all this incredible advocacy work and like activism for 50 years. Also, she's like won Oscars. She's an actress. Also, she has this exercise. Like, how does this all add up? This seems like a cultural, this seems like a decodering, just like explaining the Jane Fonda workout. So I started looking at it and she'd accepted a award um, for some women's magazine where she had credited the person who had created the workout, who's this woman named Lenny Kasdan. And she's written about her in a biography. I mean, her autobiography, Jane Fonda, has. Like, she's been very, at this point, open that the workout preexisted her doing it. She had become a fan of it and acolyte of it. And, you know, that was the basis for the Jane Fonda workout. And so I reached out to Lenny Kasdan. And then I reached out to Jane Fonda. And suddenly I was, like, talking to both of them. <laughs> But then it it got complicated because it turns out that I mean, this is it's in the episode and why the episode is so fun, Um, because there's just like a lot of things I didn't know about their dynamic that, you know, and they they just have a complicated, really long history and dynamic. And we got to sort of like accidentally just get dropped right into the middle of it. Okay, let's listen to some of it now. This is Dakota Ring with the story behind the Jane Fonda workout. And just a warning, this story contains references to eating disorders. So Jane, trying to get in shape for a forthcoming movie, starts coming to Lenny's class every day. And the days there aren't classes, she hires Lenny to teach private ones at, say, Barbara Streisand's sister's apartment or Jane Fonda's ranch. Lenny even makes Jane a vacation location cassette tape to use when she's not in L.A. And Jane starts teaching the routine to the female staff on one of her movie sets. They're spending a lot of time together, but they're not exactly intimate. When you have a life like mine and someone asks you, that's the worst thing. I think the reason my classes never stopped is I didn't want anyone to ask me anything. She was a very mysterious little character. She was this little person who would come in and do this thing for an hour and a half that people became totally addicted to. And then she would disappear. Yeah. I was kind of like Johnny Carson. Jane was struggling with her own things, too. Well, I was totally compulsive. I had been bulimic from age 15 to in my 40s around this time and I had I had gone cold turkey it you know it's very hard it's hard to give up an addiction and it was very hard for me but it was a matter of life and death and and with what the workout did for me was fill in that hole (laughs) um it it made it easy for me to not go back to having eating disorders it was a way that I could kind of control my body without having to do bad things to it. So here they were, two people who saw a lot of each other, but maybe didn't know each other as well as they thought. And then they decided to go into business together. 
It starts in Jane's telling when she and her husband, Tom Hayden, were trying to figure out how to raise more money for the Campaign for Economic Democracy, which was very expensive to run. She read an article about a fringe political character who funded his organization with a sideline computer business. Tom and I said, oh, wow, we got to start a business that, that can fund the Campaign for Economic Democracy. And we thought of all kinds of things. And then one day... We had a ranch that was a children's camp up north, north of Santa Barbara, and I was Lenny and I were going up there, and she she was in the car ahead of me, and I remember we stopped for gas, and I I remember exactly where it was, and I thought, oh my God, this could be the business. The idea here was not to film a best-selling workout tape. It's 1978. Video is barely a thing. The idea instead is to open an exercise studio based on Lenny's exercise technique. The two of them throw themselves into the project. Lenny's scouting locations and hiring staff and talking to architects. They pick out a space on Robertson Boulevard in Beverly Hills and a name, Jane and Lenny's Workout. But there are no contracts, no official deals of any kind. And Lenny, for her part, doesn't even know that the whole point of the business, as far as Jane is concerned, is to fund the CED. It's when they start to make everything official that it all goes pear-shaped. So I need to give you the basic gist of what happened because it's hard to parse just from what Jane and Lenny said on the call. Going into the call, I had this gist myself because Jane wrote about all of this in her autobiography. Jane says she was persuaded by her lawyer that it would make the most financial sense to have CED own the business, even though this would shut Lenny out. At the time, Jane could only see the forest, not the trees, only the CED and the value of its work, which was so intertwined with her marriage that Lenny became an afterthought. And as this is going down, Lenny just removes herself from the situation. She tells Jane that she's met a man with whom she's going to sail around the world, and she leaves, abdicates, with nothing to show for it. Lenny and I went and had lunch. She just, you know, she told me that she felt that given the way things were going, She didn't see her place in it very clearly and that she was going to go sailing around the world. And and that's that's what happens. But I feel badly that she never got the credit publicly that she deserved for for the workout. Thanks. On the phone with Jane, Lenny pretty much matched her tone. Well, we didn't do it together. I had this guy who wanted to get married and sail around the world. He was building a 76-foot cutter named Free Spirit that was gorgeous. I thought, well, and I was used to working alone and and, uh, without an education. And all of a sudden, people are talking about other things. And I go, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> it got too business-like, I guess, or something. I don't know. Did you have, did you have like, at the time, like, did you have any feelings about like it took over the world. Like, did was that like? How did that make you feel? At the, like, what did it feel like? It just felt kind of bad that I had a lot to do with it, but I couldn't tell anybody because it looked at me like I was nuts. So I just never mentioned it. Sucked it up. Hey, it is what it is. I'm not sorry about it. I mean, I've had a phenomenal life. It wasn't like I went left and went into the ditch. I sailed around the world on an amazing boat. As you can probably tell from my fumbling question, as I was on Zoom listening to all of this, I was thinking, Lenny's holding back. Like, we're talking about getting elbowed out of a million-dollar business based on one's own work. 
Either she's super enlightened, or that has to have sucked way more than she's letting on. But that's what people do with journalists all the time. They put on their best face. So even as I was thinking, this is kind of whitewashed, I was also thinking, this is just the version of the story that Jane and Lenny want to tell. One with the mutual admiration dialed up, and the edges, the conflict, dialed down. So what happened next surprised me, which was that on the phone, by herself, Lenny was ready to get right into how painful this had all been for her. Jane handed me a contract, which might as well have been a job application. So she wanted me to sign the contract. We actually had a, a lunch. We were sitting at a table and she looked at me and she said, this is going on with or without you. And that was that. I mean, you just literally took everything from me. I didn't have anything else to do. It destroyed me of the top three things, and I lost a child. That's one of them. From Slate, that was Dakota Ring. That episode was produced by Benjamin Frisch. It was written and hosted by Willa Paskin, who's with me now. Let's uh, switch things up now. And you brought a selection of podcasts for us to hear today. So let's jump in and, yeah. and like start listening. First up is The Turning, Room of Mirrors. What's this one about? So this is like this very elegant and like deeply reported uh, narrative podcast from Erica Lance. Um, and this one is about ballet and sort of specifically it's oriented around George Balanchine and the New York City ballet. And I mean, Balanchine is a very sort of like fraught figure because he is like this. I mean, this is sort of what it the the whole series is about. Is just like does ballet have to be organized around this like god choreographer and where mm. does that model come from? And the answer is it comes from Balanchine and like thinking about the things that have been productive about that and all of the things that have been really unproductive about that. You know about power and women and especially their bodies and the shapes of them and the colors of them. Um, and that's like sort of the animating question of the show. Hmm. And are you a ballet person? No, not even a little bit. Okay. Good I like to, love, to go, I love to go to the ballet. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, I like, I, with the ballet and the opera, I'm just going to out myself right now. It's like a total Philistine, but like, there's, it's so fun. You go and then I always feel so sleepy, but it's like the most nice place to take a nap. Do you know mm, what I mean? Like, you mm-hmm. fall asleep for 10 minutes and then like the beautiful music's still playing and you wake up and you're like, was that 10 minutes? Was it an hour? Was it 30 seconds? I don't know. But that was yeah. great. I not totally like a- agree. I totally agree. <laughs> this is not why people should really be going to the ballet or the opera for like the best nap they ever had. But I, I uh, you know, you get some of it. Anyway. It's meditative. It's meditative. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. exactly. Um, OK, so let's listen to a bit of it now. We're going to hear about George Balanchine's childhood. He was born in St. Petersburg, Russia in 1904. And when he was nine, his parents left him at the prestigious Imperial Ballet School. That's where we'll pick up this story. With all this work and skill building, Balanchine's world now revolved around the theater. His family had been blotted out. In his own mind, the curtain was closed on the family and the curtain was open on the world of the theater. Elizabeth believes he would carry this hurt from being abandoned for the rest of his life. He himself said that he felt like someone had abandoned a dog. I think he was incredibly furious, but a child of nine can't distinguish grief from anger. I imagine that his psyche shut down or closed off to his family and therefore 
had to open itself to his new world, the theater and the theater people. And also, in an extraordinary letter, he wrote, I hope you understand how alone I am ever since my family left me in the school at age nine. I've been alone. When I found that letter recently, I realized that that feeling of having only the theater for a family and a world and a tribe was deeply at the center of him. The only connection he had left to his family was music. That was the one constant. That was his link to the past. He couldn't emotionally connect anymore. They'd done this horrible thing. They'd abandoned him. But music could somehow connect his whole self. I imagine that that's why he had this eerie facility with matching steps to music, because he lived those steps. They were his language. In his innermost dialogue with himself, it was ballet steps, not words. And music. Elizabeth says Balanchine's teachers saw him as an independent boy who was courteous, detached, and eerily self-confident. Although Balanchine initially disliked the school, he grew to love ballet. He had a revelation on stage, dancing in Sleeping Beauty. With all of the music, the lights, the costumes, he realized he was in the middle of a thing of beauty. And then, Elizabeth says, ballet almost died. In 1917, a bullet burst through the theater school window and almost hit a student. Days later, a crowd in military uniforms rushed through the school halls. It was late at night. They were searching for monarchists in the dormitories, peering under beds. The Russian Revolution had begun. In October, the Bolsheviks, led by Vladimir Lenin, took control of the country. The Bolsheviks envisioned a world where workers would hold the power. The Tsar and his family were murdered, nobility was abolished, aristocrats fled or were killed. The Bolshevik Party would eventually become the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. The Tsarist Romanov dynasty was over. The Bolsheviks wanted to wipe out any whiff of the old aristocracy. And no one knew what that meant for ballet. Balanchine was 13 years old. His school closed, and life in St. Petersburg changed dramatically. The city of St. Petersburg suffered after the revolution. St. Petersburg had been the capital of the Russian Empire under the Tsar. Now, with Lenin in power, the government moved to Moscow, essentially abandoning St. Petersburg. And the resources, which were very few after the revolution, all flowed to Moscow, leaving St. Petersburg to starve and freeze. There was no heat, there was no fuel, very little food. All rationed. Balanchine School was turned into barracks for guards. That winter, in 1917 and 1918, it was hard to even find bread in a shop. 13-year-old Balanchine and his friends stole fish at night from local barges before he could find a job. But then came some hope for ballet. It had to do with Lenin's Minister of Education, who also oversaw culture and arts. Lenin's Minister of Culture had a vision of all the arts existing simultaneously and the people learning all about the high arts that they'd been deprived of. And ballet's new meaning was up for grabs. Balanchine's Ballet School reopened with a new mission. Which is to make 
dances for a utopia, the Bolshevik utopia. Now the theater would welcome laborers, soldiers, and sailors into the audience. Workers got free tickets from their factories and labor units. Meanwhile, half the city's population was gone. They were dead from disease or off to villages in search of food. One Russian described people who passed each other in the gray, cold city as phantoms in oblivious silence. In those conditions, the ballet school started up again with utopian aims and visions, utopian excitement and no heat and no food, which can sharpen your senses to your art and impact your health. And it did both with Balanchine. The children at ballet school had boils for malnutrition and lice that carried typhus. On cold nights, the boys and girls moved their beds from separate dormitory rooms to the old infirmary to stay warm. They suffered, but they bonded. And they felt immersed in art. From Rococo Punch and iHeart Podcast, that was The Turning, Room of Mirrors. It's hosted, written, and produced by Erica Lance. Eileen Lance Lesser also writes and produces. The story editor is Emily Foreman. So let's move on to your next podcast. Um, tell me about appearances. Okay, yes, I really love this podcast. It came out now a while ago. It came out the very end of 2020. And it is sort of like a unicorn. There's not a lot of things that are like it. Um, it was created by this woman named Sharon Mashihi. And it is um, fiction, but autofiction. Like it's it's sort of based around her life. But she creates a fictional alter ego named Melanie and then basically like explores sort of these questions about whether or not she wants to have a child as a single mother and also just like dealing with her family. She's um, a Jewish Iranian American, so she uh, grew up in a very close-knit Persian community. And she does all the voices of like her mom, of her brother, of her dad. And honestly, it's I'm like explaining it. It makes it sound like insane. It's so good. Like I actually, it's almost like a magic trick. I don't know how... Um, the whole thing hangs together as like fantastically as it does. It's like it's like a play. I mean, it's like nine episodes of, you know, the best Charlie Kaufman slash like lady <laughs> memoir you've ever heard. I don't know. It's a really good show. And and what was the hook for you? Like what drew you in? I think I had read about it and it sort of sounded interesting. Um, and then it's just extremely well done. Like it's beautiful. It sounds beautiful. It's really well produced. She's not like like she's a very good actress and she's doing all these voices. I mean, I think the clip you're going to hear, you'll get it. Like you're like she's she's just like also, you know, she just goes through so many different feelings. Like it's very funny. It's very touching. It's very like heavy it's all those things at once it's deal- i mean it's about dysfunctional families and how to be a grown up and it's it's really great <laughs> okay let's take a listen now in this episode the narrator melanie is trying to unpack her complicated feelings about relationships and just a warning this clip includes mature content that may not be appropriate for younger listeners it's subtle it's beneath the surface and i find this disturbing about myself But I feel like I'm out to prove that every man who has ever loved me has loved me 
more than my father loves my mom. Going like mad, and I said, yes, I will, yes. Yes, I said, yes, I will, yes. At least I am not settling for a love so meager as the one I saw in my childhood. Do you know how sexy I think it is? Even the one night stands. You? I say to myself, he loves me more. A man who has met me and known me for just one night. And on the flip side of that, I think, how dare I get to have a love that's bigger than the one my mother got. As long as she is inadequately loved, then I, as her loyal daughter, should also be inadequately loved. Okay, now look at each other. I am thinking about partnership and love and how both those things me, manifest in my family because I am at my brother's wedding. I love you so hard. I love you. Well, the wedding hasn't technically started yet. We're at the before part. The guests are going to arrive any moment. What is it, Vida? And my parents Jamshid. are about to get into a huge fight about my father's choice to hire a very expensive band. Gypsy King! Surprise! Without consulting my mom. Where did you get the money? I refinanced. You refinanced my house so that Gypsy King could play Bombolea three times in a row? Are you kidding me? Sorry, Vida, what do you want me to say? They are my favorite band. Jamshid, I don't understand why the night of my own son's wedding, I have to have all of this anxiety because of your actions. And I don't understand why the night of my son's wedding, I have to be stuck next to a party pooper like you. Party pooper? You poop all over my life! Okay, chafe, chafe, the people are coming. And one, two, three. Hi! Let's get the whole family together. Where is Melanie? Where is Melanie? Melanie, Baba, where are you? Melanie! 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 Meanwhile, my phone. Text from Ponch. I hope Hope you're having fun on the dance floor, period. I'm just sitting at home, period. Wondering why I'm not there. Another text from Ponch. I miss you. I miss you. Where is your heart, Melanie? Question mark. Where? is your heart. And another text. I hope you know this seriously affects my willingness to be the father of your child, period. Not that you even seem very serious about that anyway, period. To which I respond, Sorry, sorry, sorry comma, just sorry, I just need a little bit of space tonight, of space okay? Tonight, okay? <sighs> really? Sorry. Melanie, why are you wearing that weird dress? I'm allowed to wear whatever I want. Melanie, there's no such thing as whatever you want. I'm a grown man at my wedding, and I'm wearing the tux that my mom picked out for me, okay? You should be wearing something more appropriate. Nope. Different rules for me and you. Your life exists within the confines of the Persian community, but mine just doesn't. What? There's so much you don't understand. Examples that my brother's life exists within the confines of the Persian community, and mine doesn't. One, he comes home every Friday night for Shabbat. I only come home when I'm sick or need to borrow money. Two, he gets invited to every Iranian Jewish wedding within a five-year radius of his age. I only get invited to the weddings of first cousins, and one time the wedding of a second cousin I made out with in seventh grade. 
three, the rabbi and the kosher butcher and the crooked doctor who prescribes Adderall to everyone, they all know Bobak's name. Hey, Bobak. Bobak, salam. Salam. Bobak. When I see them on the street and I say hello, they can't even tell I'm Persian. Hello, um, young lady. And example number four that my brother's life exists within the confines of the Persian community and mine doesn't. Easy. My mom does my laundry. Our mother would never do my laundry for fear of what she might find in my pockets. A cigarette, or a vape pen, or a condom, or any number of things that are her worst nightmare. Additional things I might find in Melanie's pockets that would be my worst nightmare. One, a business card to a strip club. Two, the business card of a married man she's having an affair with. Three, a coupon for bacon. Four, an actual piece of bacon. Five, lesbian paraphernalia. Meanwhile, Bobak's pockets. His pockets are flawless. The only thing I ever find in them is Trident Cinnamon Chewing Gum, which I lovingly remove before every single wash. <laughs> it's like, I, you know, you just like, everyone was like, I want to change the form. Do you hear like people say yeah. something like that? And then you're like, it's hard to do that. You're like, this is. Not a lot of people doing this. Pretty good. High difficulty. Really great. Great show. (laughs) From Mermaid Palace, that was Appearances. It's created and performed by Sharon Mashihi. The role of Ponch is played by Thatcher Keats. Their team includes Sunita Prasad, Mo Laborde, Ariel Mejia, Harry Nazan, and Caitlin Press. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Willa, we're bringing it back to Slate with your next pick. Yeah. It's called Hi-Fi Nation, and, and the Fi for people who are listening is spelled P-H-I. What's this podcast about? Sure, this is um, a philosophy podcast hosted by Barry Lamb, who actually I think started it independently and then brought it into Slate. Um, and he makes this narrative show that is, you know, it's like it's not just a talk show, but it's animated by exploring like philosophical ideas. Like they did an episode about effective altruism, you know, for example. And then they did one about the gig economy. They basically like look at these things and they he finds the philosophical meat and questions in them and uses that to uh, think about those ideas. And you wanted us to hear the episode about vampires. What, what did you like about this one? So, yes. So he did this episode about <laughs> basically using <laughs> the question from Twilight, of whether or not you really want to become a vampire as a way into this phenomena, like this larger set of experiences that like existentially change your life. So um, that would include, so obviously becoming a vampire, but also like having a child or um, a religious conversion or a hallucinogenic experience, basically something where like before the experience and after the experience, you are like you're not the same. 
I, I really just like thought it was good. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, in in the clip that we're about to hear, we're actually going to hear more about vampires, and they're going to specifically talk about the Twilight series, where the human character Bella wants her vampire boyfriend Edward to turn her into a vampire as well, so they can be together forever. This is High Fi Nation. So another way of thinking about this is Bella right now as a human really wants to be a vampire, but there's this chance and maybe even a good one that when she becomes the vampire, she's no longer going to want to love Edward or even have the same feelings as she does when she's a human because she's a vampire. Exactly. And Edward sees that ahead of time, but she doesn't. Exactly. This is Laurie Paul, philosopher at Yale University and the author of Transformative Experience. She isn't as interested in becoming a vampire for the sake of being a vampire. She just wants to be with Edward forever. And Edward is worried that once she becomes a vampire, what she wants is going to change in some pretty radical ways. The other defining feature of transformative experiences is that you don't know And you can't know what it's like to be a vampire before you're actually a vampire. And this is unlike a lot of smaller decisions, like the decision to order chocolate lava cake for dessert rather than apple pie. You know pretty much what it's going to be like to eat the lava cake. In fact, that's why you choose it. But for a transformative decision, you have to make a choice without having any of that knowledge. This is why choosing to become a vampire is a particularly interesting philosophical issue. How do you make a reasonable choice when you have no idea what it's like on the other side of that choice? I don't know about you, but when I think about what I want to be doing in the future, I'm very interested in the nature and character and quality of like that future lived experience. And that's important for big life choices. I mean, and also, you know, how I'm going to be, you know, if, if I embody whatever that new life state is, that's going to affect lots of things like my relationships with other people and all kinds of things. Now, what are the range of things, not science fiction and not fantasy, that go in the category of transformative experiences? The paradigm case that Lori has used is having a child. Your perception of the world, your experience of the world, your reaction to the world change so radically after you have a child. You can't make a sort of rational, informed decision about whether to have a child based on what you think it will be like. Right now, you can be worried that if you have a child, you won't get to eat at a fancy restaurant anymore for many years. And you take that as a strike against having a kid. But it might be that once you do have a child, you're not going to care that much anymore about eating at fancy restaurants. Your values will change. So can you issue the fancy restaurant thing as a strike against having a kid now? This is the problem with deciding rationally about transformative experiences. You can't really do a cost-benefit analysis right now to make a transformative decision. Everything you might count as a plus or minus might not count at all as a plus or a minus after the decision. 
For Laurie Paul, transformative experiences raise a problem for something called decision theory. Decision theory tells you to take your preferences and kind of run that cost-benefit analysis, assuming that your preferences remain more or less the same across the decision. But a case like Becoming a Vampire is a case where your preferences, even like your higher order, not just like your basic preferences, like I want to drink coffee, but like your higher order preferences, like I'm okay with slaughtering people for food. It's like your really important thoughts about what you care about and who you are and what's important to you are likely to change when you make this decision. And so the you that's making the decision is is importantly different from the you that on the other side of the decision in such a way that you can't, Laurie says, you can't rationally choose for that other person. From Slate, that was Hi-Fi Nation. It's created and hosted by Barry Lamb. And in that episode, he was joined by co-host Christina Van Dyke. Okay, well, we've come to your final selection today. This is Terrestrials. <laughs> yes. What can you tell us about this one? So Terrestrials is a kid's show um, from the Radio Lab team. Um, it's hosted by Lilu Miller, who is also one of the co-hosts of Radio Lab, And it's a kids podcast, of which there are a lot. And I have children and there's a lot of really good ones. But um, Terrestrials is really good because it's really good about narrative. Like there is so it's it's the concept is it's about terrestrials. They have a silly song um, that's for kids. Terrestrials, terrestrials, we are not the worst. We are the best reals. Yeah. <laughs> but they are do such a good job of like having it be also a story, like have it function like an adult narrative podcast, essentially, while also like being gripping and good for kids. But that's really like the sweet spot for grownups listening. And you wanted us to hear their episode about eagles. Why this one? <laughs> well, because my children were literally like in the backseat being like, no, like turn it off. The eagles, something horrible is happening. And they were like, wait, what happened? Like they were just, <laughs> the story is about uh, this. Basically, there's an eagle cam uh, that's like taking pictures of an eagle nest. And there's a mommy eagle who's been trying to have an eagle baby and ends up basically forming a sort of like a family with these two eagle dads who are really good dads, are really good eagle dads. And you're going to hear about like this climactic battle to like save and keep safe their little eagle chicks. Hmm. Yeah. So let's, it's really sweet story. Um, let's listen to a bit of it now. Um, we've got the mama bird named Hope and two papa birds named Valor 1 and Valor 2. And this particular trio was spotted in 2013 and a few years later happened to build their nest right next to a wildlife camp. Let's take a listen. It is now early spring in Illinois and up about 100 feet in a nest, three bald eagle parents have just welcomed on camera for all the world to see three baby eaglets. You know, they were so tiny, oh my, and so adorable. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and as biologist Ed watches these three parents caring for their babies, 
Two of them standing guard while one goes off to hunt. All six of the birds nuzzling down in the nest at night. They were the happiest family. He starts thinking about why this unusual trio actually makes sense. Because, see, Hope had been trying to make a family for years before she linked up with the two daddies. And this is a little sad, but she had a hard time. Her baby sometimes got cold or fell out of the nest when she was away hunting. And they didn't always make it. Yeah, it was awfully sad. And those losses were huge. Because bald eagles had been endangered, almost extinct, so every birth mattered. Where I grew up in southern Illinois, we never saw bald eagles. That was back in the 40s and the 50s. I'm, I'm elderly. <laughs> Humans had almost wiped out bald eagles from hunting them, cutting down their forests, using chemicals. But as Ed grew up, he was a part of the group of people who tried everything they could think of to save bald eagles. They protected forests and banned hunting of bald eagles and stopped using chemicals that harmed them. But looking up at the trees, he realized it was like this trio of eagles had come up with a brilliant technique all of their own. To be able to witness it, that's the miracle. You know, it doesn't have to be a traditional family for it to work. And by June, as the forest turned soft with green leaves, one by one, each of the three eaglets with newly lanky wings tested the air and leapt away. So long, Mom and Dad and Dad, I've had a blast, now I'm leaving this nest. So long, Mom and Dad and Dad, it's been real, it's been fun, but now I gotta run, and I run, I may fly, so I'm saying Year after year, those three parents stay together, fledging more and more eaglets and, in the process, challenging scientists' notions about what a natural family looks like. Until one cold evening in March, Hope screams out. Eagles, when they alert, they have a certain call to one another. That's webcam watcher Nell again. I saw Hope looking up into the sky, and you could see she was tracking. And then she started doing her alert call to her partners to come, you know, to come see what's going on. And what's going on is that two stranger eagles were dive-bombing the nest, attacking Hope and her two newest babies. Our phone lines light up. With people saying, Oh my gosh, something terrible has just happened. You've got to get out there and do something. Ed flips on his live feed of the cam and sees... A very large bird, which we believe to be a female, was on the back of Hope. Her talons were digging into Hope's shoulders. There's no dads on the nest. The dads are both down on the ground, fighting off the other invading eagle. They're two babies. They didn't look good. They looked scared of this huge eagle attacking their mom. I wanted to reach through the computer monitor and grab that other eagle <laughs> is what I wanted to do. And they struggled for over an hour. The last thing I saw was Hope and her going off the nest. 
they just they basically dragged one another off one side of the nest and went down to the ground. Ed and his team rush out into the forest to search around on the ground for hope. But meanwhile, up in that nest, those babies are all alone. It looked like they hadn't been fed for a while. They were ragged. They were weak. And then suddenly... I saw the dads taking over, Valor 1 and Valor 2, like little troopers. The dads fly back up into the nest to defend their babies. It was such a relief that they were there. But right on their tails are the two invading eagles. They return and they keep attacking. They wanted to kill everything up there and take the nest over. The sun rises and the attackers keep at it for days, weeks. But those dads? They just defended that nest with their lives, not caring what happened to them, but caring for those little baby eaglets. And the two dads, Valor 1 and Valor 2, valiantly, very valiantly fought off this pair of eagles. And after about three weeks, the attacks finally ended. Hope was never seen again. Nobody's sure exactly what happened to her, but those two dads stayed with their babies as the air grew warm, as yellow and purple flowers began poking their way up through the dirt and kids began fishing on the Mississippi River. The dads kept watch over their chicks, bringing them food and keeping them warm at night until finally, come June... The two chicks ended up uh, growing and, and leaving the nest. It was extremely happy. Yes, indeed. We gave him the greatest dad's award of the year. Ed says he was totally shocked by how things unfolded, by how caring and collaborative the two dads were together. And this is just one incredible survival story that uh, I would have never fathomed in my career. It's such a sweet story. <laughs> it really is. It really is. You'll laugh. You'll cry. <laughs> Your kids will scream. Then they'll be really interested. <laughs> that was Terrestrials. It's from WNYC Studios. It's created and hosted by Lulu Miller. Their team includes Anna Gonzalez and Alan Gafinski, who also wrote and performed the music. And that's all the time we have today. Willa, thank you so much for being here and, and sharing all these stories with us. Yeah, it was really fun. Thanks for having me. Willa Paskin is the creator and host of the podcast Dakota Ring from Slate. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked Willa's podcast picks, you can hear more. We've got links and more info on everything you heard at cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. Podcast playlist is Julian Uzielli and Kelsey Cueva with technical support from Emily Caravazio. Our senior producer is Kate Evans. Our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Happy listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.